Chris. And I'm Andrew, and welcome to episode 8 of Video Games Cover to Cover, Final Fantasy X-2. I completed chapter 4 this week. We both did. And I gotta say, there's just something about the even-numbered chapters in this game, because just like chapter 2, chapter 4 was pretty underwhelming to me. Yeah, it was not only, for me, it was not only underwhelming, but incredibly disappointing. I would agree. For a number of reasons. If I had to sum up Chapter 4 just as a concept, it was, it felt exactly like the cut content episode. All these, all I could think most of the time was, this really feels like stuff they had wanted to include but couldn't, and so it just got thrown in like this. It, it just goes by so fast, especially with the whole commspheres thing, it just... Not only did I look like a creep the entire time spying on people, but you really only get to go to the actual world, I think, twice. And it just kind of felt rushed. And and it almost seems like instead of being an entire chapter, it almost seems like it should have been something we had done at the beginning of chapter five. But they just decided to say, oh, well, just include a chapter of filler. Yeah, and I guess that's what I mean mostly by cut content, because like a lot of these things you look at in the spheres feel like, you know, resolution to some of the arcs and stuff we've been talking about earlier. But instead of actually doing something to resolve it, you're just watching a video. There's only maybe like half an hour of actual gameplay and all, and the rest of the chapter is just sitting there watching video. It's like, it's like suddenly we're playing Metal Gear Solid. I will say, though, just like last time when I was editing Session 7, I had a thought and... I agree with you at this point, and while I was listening to it, I agreed even more that Xu Yen is the one actually uh, possessing people. But I think he might be possessing people because he doesn't have a body to return to. Because everyone else who sticks around keeps their body, and they even said that, like, so when Aaron died, he his body was, like, mutilated by... Unalaska or whatever, there was like burns and gash marks and everything all over it. And Kamari patches him up and then he gets sent back to Xanarkin by Sin. But he actually still had a body to return to. So I'm thinking that Shugen might be possessing people because he doesn't have that option anymore. No, I I think that's probably exactly right. Yes. And the thing about Aaron is all through 10... He looks just, you know, extremely beat up and stuff. Like, you can't see necessarily the burn marks because of his clothes. But He never know. uses that one arm. Right, and, you know, one of his eyes is permanently closed, and there's a big gash over it. And and he specifically had the use of both of his arms in all of those spheres when you go back in 10 and watch them. Yeah, he doesn't one-hand things in the spheres. So I got, I got the idea that it's probably because he doesn't have a body to return to. And that's the reason why he has to possess people to get his his whole stuff done. Yeah, and I think it's just because he was gone so long. Because, you know, as we've established at this point, all this stuff happened a thousand years ago from the spheres. And when he was talking to Yuna in, at the end of Chapter 3 on the far plane, he definitely made it sound like he had only just come back. And so his body had to have, you know, long since been just a skeleton, if not even less than that, over a thousand years of decay. Well, it I don't know if he had just come back or not, because it, at least in the earlier sphere, you see, like in the very beginning, when Yuna has her dream right after she watches the whole sphere, 
you see both Shu Yin and Len presumably getting shot and dying. But later on, he's in a cage yelling at people. So I'm wondering, either he didn't die in that scene, or he refused to pass on. So maybe he had a body at that point, or maybe his body's like in a cage somewhere. And because it can't get out, maybe he has, maybe he t- it took him a thousand years to just learn how to leave using the pyreflies and start possessing people. I mean, that very well could be, but you're right. But even then, you know, I, I don't think that video of him in the cage was particularly recent. I, I, I think you're probably right. It happened after getting shot, but I don't feel like that was, you know, within the last well before Yuna was alive. I guess yeah, I think that's like a thousand years ago, too. But, I mean, I guess it doesn't... We already completed chapter four. I mean, I'm not going to skip everything, but just to go forward a little bit, Mocklin's definitely a thousand years old, right? Absolutely. Like he has to be. Like we, I know we talked about that before, but every single time he shows up, it just makes me think that even more. Yeah. So it's not entirely impossible that, you know... That body exists, but if he spent, if he can't get out of that cage or whatnot, maybe he just, maybe his body, because my, my question is, does the body stop aging once you die or does it continue aging and you just have to like get energy or something? I mean, that's a question we're never, ever going to get an answer on. I yeah. Think. I mean, that one's going to be always be entirely speculation, but it's really hard to say because Assuming we're right, and I I have to believe we are, and Mocklin is a thousand years old at this point, you could it could go either way because he's so old. How would you even know? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So I it, it it's hard to tell, but that was my that was my thought when I was listening to the recordings. Is you know if he has to use pyreflies to get around possessing people, it is probably because he just doesn't have a body to use anymore. Because everyone else that dies just uses their same body. And that's why I was saying before that I wasn't sure if that was the case because they had never established if Pyreflies could even do that or not. But he probably just doesn't have a body anymore. It's probably just gone. It makes me wonder, like, you know, could Arryn theoretically have possessed another dead body they came across on the road if he had wanted to? Or is that something that Shu Yin basically had to learn over time? Well, because Arryn was also older. I mean, I think so maybe they do age. Maybe, although they also kind of said that pretty much all of Arryn's looking old was like the shock of death, essentially, because he died in such a violent way. Oh, yeah, because he also had that red or or the um, white streak in his hair. Yeah, yeah, basically like he essentially, you know, it was all damage from his death. Yeah, because from what I understand, Unalesco was not, uh, did not really care about him at all. It was pretty clear that Unalesco was kind of a terrible person to begin with. It seemed kind of like she either just went insane or was insane by the fact that her her lover had died to become sin. That maybe that whole thing was so traumatic for her that she just kind of was like, well, this is just the way it is. This is the way it is forever. And that's the only way to deal with it. <laughs> I That actually could be true if it was one of those things where that was how she coped with it, that well, you know, it had to be that way. There can't possibly be any other options. And that was basically her dealing with the trauma. And that's why she reacted so violently when Titus or Aaron suggested that maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. So with these spheres, 
all we really did through the entire chapter four was watch people on calm spheres. And like I had mentioned in the beginning, definitely felt a little creepy at times. Oh, for sure. It was cool that it seemed like everybody knew she was there. Yeah, it was interesting. It was like a two-way camera, which was not how I was expecting it originally. I did like that while I was upset that it kind of felt a little bit like filler, I did like that it fleshed out the side characters more. I really liked um, seeing like the RX in Besaid training for their Blitzball thing. And if you watch the Comsphere long enough, I don't know if you did, they actually break the one in Besaid because they hit it with a Blitzball and I- then you can't look <laughs> at it again. I didn't see that one, no, but that is pretty funny. And then somehow it gets magically fixed, even though the other ones that break don't get magically fixed later. But but yeah, if you if you keep watching them train, they're trying they're clearly trying to do the jack shot that Titus did in the first game. <laughs> That's fantastic. Because they keep jumping up and spinning around and then kicking the ball and they can't get it right. And then one guy kicks it and it veers off and hits the comm sphere. And then Shinra is just like, they really suck. Poor Shinra. He's right, but poor... But not poor Shinra, poor Arx. Well, poor Shinra, because every single time... Like, it seems like he, he works so hard on this Comsphere network, basically following you around for the entirety of Chapter 3 to set it up. And I think half of them are broken by the end of it. Yeah, and I will say, I really like Shinra. I know we've talked about it before, but of the characters who are brand new, he might be my favorite. Like, he, he's just really fun. A- except for the fact that he installed a comm sphere in the hot springs. Yeah. Shinra, dude, why on earth would you have done that? And when did you do it? Because I didn't even go to the hot springs in chapter three. I'm pretty sure it's it's when, when you're chasing up the mountain. I think he takes a detour there. Was that in chapter three? I thought that was chapter two. No, that was chapter three when you go off to fight. Um, what's his name? Also, on that note. I actually did some thinking about it, and I do remember why I felt so unsatisfied now. I, like, I can put that into words, that incident from Chapter 3 on Mount Gagazet. Well, well, let's do that when we actually get to the Gagazet section of, okay, fair enough. of the spheres. So, did, did you have anything in particular to say about the spheres or anything that you saw? The only real thing is, so much of it comes back to, like I was saying, where it feels like, hey, we had ideas for you know, uh, gameplay to resolve all of these quests because a lot of these things are sort of resolving stuff that we've had out there. But I'm guessing either it was a time or a budget thing and they were just running out. So instead of just completely cutting it and then having no resolution, they were just, oh, we'll just make a quick video about this with the commspheres. And it was, I, I guess it's better than nothing, but it definitely, like, as you were saying, disappointing, I completely agree because so many things are like, oh, well, I guess that's just the end of that now. I did think it was cool that things that you had set up in later chapters kind of came to fruition. What did you choose when you when you told the Ronzo kids where to go? In the guide, he said Jose, so I just picked the same thing. I, I did too, but it didn't matter. But I did, I did enjoy, yeah, you get to see them in Jose briefly. Well, yes, it didn't matter in the sense that it doesn't mean anything, but it mattered that you got to see them. And I thought that was cool that you saw, you saw them come out of the temple, shake their heads, and just kind of move along yeah i also thought it was so when you do the syndicate one ormi comes out at one point and he's talking to yuna and he says hey have you seen news yuna definitely lies to him we have seen news 
we yeah. have seen him under that whole thing. Later, they refer to that somehow as the far plane, but we have seen him. She straight up just lies to Ormi. Maybe she just doesn't feel like telling Ormi the truth, but we have seen news. And I was kind of like, oh, you could have just mentioned that we saw him. And that if you had mentioned that we saw him, it would have made her showing up on the Gallwings ship actually make more sense later. I mean, yes, yeah. it was after the concert and everything, so if they were going to come see us, it makes the most sense, but she was kind of off doing her own thing. It doesn't really make sense for her to have shown up. But if they had a quick calm sphere of Yuna just saying, yeah, we saw news, come talk to us about it when you get a chance, it would have made sense that they actually show up on the ship later. But Yeah, that's fair. I hadn't thought about that, but I mean, that's a good point. And if I mean, you, they bring a sphere, so it's not like they have no reason to be there, but yes, it does make more sense. Yeah, that's a good point. They did bring that sphere. I forgot about that. They bring Crimson Sphere spot five. I watched it after all of the events, you know, after the whole... Yeah, you can't watch it until you actually get into chapter five, just because when you go back to the bridge, it like immediately ends the chapter. I will say, though, from watching all of the Syndicate comms, the members all have a very clear respect for LeBlanc. Yeah, it's and, and the biggest reason why is one of them actually mentions the fact that he was there when Sid blew up Besaide or not Besaide, um, their home in Bocknell. So he mentions that he had no home to go back to because Sid blew it up and that when he had nowhere to go, LeBlanc took him in and they all kind of had similar stories to that where when they had nowhere else to go, LeBlanc took them in, fed them, and gave them a job. And they all have a lot of respect for her because of that. And even later on, Lagos and Ormi make reference essentially to the same thing. They say that their time at Yevon was horrible, and when they met her, they finally felt like they had purpose again. Yeah, and I was going to bring that exact same thing up about what they said, and... I will say, as far as the concierge go, that was probably my favorite part, was that conversation with them. It, Like, on the one hand, part of me is slightly disappointed that there wasn't more to it than that, but, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, because I was going to bring up something about that, too, the conversation where we learn more about that from Logos and Ormi, and on the one hand, I admit I'm a little disappointed that there wasn't more to that, in terms of you know, all the speculation that we had had about whether they were up to something or whatever. So just having it kind of just come out and be like, no, whatever, I thought was a little disappointing, but I'm glad they at least addressed it. And overall, that was one of my favorite conversations in the comm network because it did sort of paint this picture of LeBlanc and the syndicate You know, that was more than just the comic relief goofballs that they had been for most of the game. And I, I think I actually have to disagree with you a little bit. I actually really liked that because that, to me, that made LeBlanc more of the important character that I wanted her to be. So she was, for in the first part of the game, the opposite, so to speak, of Yuna. However, it was very clear by that point that while she was against Yuna her and Yuna were very much alike in the sense that she wanted to get hers, whereas Yuna kind of wanted to help everybody. 
But at the same time, LeBlanc was willing to help everybody just to serve her own means. And I actually liked that a lot more about her character. That was more of her character that I wanted her to be in the first place. The strong individual, the, the strong person who is, you know, leading these people. And I liked the fact that Lagos and Ormi didn't turn out to be against her the whole time. And at the same point, the entire syndicate as a whole, because them actually having true respect for her, despite whatever their past was with Yevon, just seemed like it gave her character a lot more respect than what they were kind of showing her in Chapter 3. Because in Chapter 3, she was just kind of nothing and wasn't even there. But the fact that you got these hints of what a a great person she actually is to an extent, I really liked that. I, I, I like that they fleshed out her character in that way. Oh, don't get me wrong. I absolutely agree as far as the LeBlanc stuff goes. I'm very happy that they did that. I guess when I was talking about being disappointed about lack of there being more, it was, I guess it just goes back to the same cut content thing I already said, but it just feels like having them just walk up to the camera and tell you felt like such a letdown as opposed to getting a way to find that out, like, you know, doing something and having LeBlanc demonstrate that goodwill or, you know, the the good person that she actually is. And that was what I meant when I was talking about it being a little bit of a letdown there. I I agree there. It would have been nice to see it in a different way other than them talking about it. But at this point, because Yuna's out in the world helping everybody, she doesn't really have that opportunity anymore because Yuna's already doing that. Yuna's already going around helping people. And I think when she joined the Gullwings, LeBlanc's syndicate was kind of already established because LeBlanc had already kind of gone off and done those things while Yuna was gone. Which is the reference to the whole, the Albed guy who was actually there when Sid blew up home. And yeah, the other problem I think with that is with what they were doing to her character up to chapter three and past that, because she's still on this whole news kick. I mean, surprise. I mean, she obviously, you know, has feelings for news. So that part I, I get, but at the same time, there just isn't really a whole lot of LeBlanc. And part of the reason for that is just, you know, main character syndrome. She's not the main character, so she's not going to be the focus. So it just seems like she just kind of got tossed to the wayside. And like you said, yeah, it's disappointing that we didn't get more of that. But what we got, I was I was happy with. And I will say, jumping ahead somewhat to when she shows up on the airship there at the end, when she finds out the situation, I do like that her immediate, like, what she says out loud, you know, is basically just, okay, we're going to go save the world now. And that's the sort of hint of the sort of thing that they were, you know, that theoretically should have always been there to explain why the syndicate liked her so much and stuff. And obviously, you know, there's some selfishness because she wants to go after news and stuff, but I do like that she just literally jumped to, okay, we're going to go save the world. Yeah, and... And that's the thing. It's like she was against Yuna through the entire game, but they were kind of doing the same things, just in different ways. Whereas Yuna was is is the very is the selfless type. I'm not gonna say LeBlanc is selfish, but when she was doing it, it seemed like she was more doing it out of I want to better my own position. Whereas Yuna is just like, I want to better everybody's position. But now when it gets to down to the 
okay, yeah, everything's got to happen. You're right. She is just the, okay, let's do this. We need to fix this. Yeah. And again, there's still, like I was saying, there's still that hint of not necessarily selfishness, but, you know, in it for herself, like you were saying, because she, she really definitely was, wants to get news. Right. But it definitely is lines up with also helping everybody. And she's not going to pretend that, that isn't part of it, too. It was so funny when she freaked out when um, Gipple is talking to news. She's like, well, what about LeBlanc? And then it's just, well, she and cuts off and she's like, what? Why did it cut off at the juicy bits? <laughs> it's like, come on, man. I need to know. I did enjoy. Uh, uh, but then again, she's just like, well, I'm just going to have to go ask him myself. <laughs> yes. So did you see all the stuff with Owaka? Because he yeah. goes into a quick depression. He, yeah. He gives up real fast. Within, I think it was three checks on him. He was going outside and going, welcome to Owaka's. Oh, what's the point? No one's even going to come here anyway. And I'm like, I'm, wow, I'm, man. I was really bummed out about the Awaka stuff just because after how impressive he was in chapter three, like, especially because in game time, you know, in the story, what has it been? Like three days? <laughs> it When you check the comm spheres, it makes it seem like this is happening over the course of several days. Yeah. I do actually get that impression because when I was checking the comm spheres for him, he would come outside as if it was a new day every single day. And it was like one day he would come out and he would say, welcome to Awaka's. And then he would talk about how he was fired up and ready to go. And, you know, he may not be getting a lot of customers, but eventually he's going to he's going to take over everything and he's going to own all the travel agencies someday. Yeah, he's going to be the next Rin, I think is how he put it. And I was like, good job, man. Good for you. And then like the next day he goes, he's like, oh, again, nobody. Then the next day and he's just, I don't know why I'm even doing this. I don't even know anymore. And so it, it seems like it was taking course over multiple days, which is actually kind of even more upsetting because it, again, feels like that's something where you would have went back and checked on it multiple times while you were doing the actual story in Chapter 4. Exactly. And he would have come to this slow burn of, yeah, things aren't working out because of the obvious thing of there are no people there. and. Here's the thing. I know I was kind of down on Awaka when he first showed up, and in general, that he's not my favorite character because he's always got that like shady vibe about him. I really kind of want this to work out for him, and I really hope in Chapter Five we can do that for him because, especially after that stuff in Chapter Three, like I want the fact that he keeps trying to actually pay off for him. Yeah, I agree with that. I really want it too. I I, I hope that things work out for him, and the very end. Right before the the start of the chapter, Makalani is one of the last places I looked at in the comm spheres. And in the guide, it said there was nothing, but there was actually stuff there. I don't know if you saw it or not. Are we talking about the fiends? Not only the fiends, his brother comes back. Whence or once is his brother. Right. And he shows up and says, I know it's been a long time. I hope you're not mad anymore or something. It. Kind of sounds like he's going to have a reunite. He's going to reunite with his brother. And then maybe both of them are going to become like, you know, sellers. And maybe they will come back. And I kind of hope they do. Not that I have anything against Rin, but this whole game has kind of... Rin's barely even been in the game. 
but when he has been in there, he's it's odd because I always thought Ren was married with kids. And when you come into the sphere tournament, he's got like these women hanging all over him. Yeah. As if he's like some mega mega popular dude now. And Ren talks to Sid and that other girl in the Yes, the hot, the hot, hot springs. Tubs. Yeah, I was yeah, gonna. I was springs. gonna. <laughs> again, we're on the same page a lot this episode because that's the next thing I was gonna bring up. Now that you talked about Rin, and, and so so Rin is talking about how he wants a home and everything, and he wants to kind of settle down because Sid is on. Sid is talking about which was another disappointment from Sid, and I know that he was just venting, but he's like, "Oh, what are these kids complaining about this for? I don't see what the big deal is." I was like, "Dude." Did you learn nothing? Like, it seems like he didn't even listen. And the, the part that he was only upset about the entire time was that Yuna was upset. And it's possible that he was just venting to Ren and Nal- Nadia, Nadia, Naldia, Nala, something like that. Yeah. But the specifically the lady from Beaconel that has been running the excavations. And, and so I'm thinking, what do they do to Ren? That was definitely weird because I thought it established in the last game that he had a wife and kid. I thought he did. Too. I thought they established that as well, although I'll admit I don't remember. But I feel like I remember commenting similarly previously whether or not it was being recorded. Did you see the shoe puff on the mountain? Uh, Which one? Like in the hot spring? Yes. Yes. How did that even get up there? I'll be honest. The hot spring stuff, some of it was, I mean, it was a little weird in general that there was a a comp sphere there, and even more so that there were so many things to watch compared to literally every other location. In my notes, it says, it did everyone on the planet decide to take a break at the hot springs? Because that's what it feels like. Even Clasco shows up there with a chocobo. Bro, are you supposed to be taking care of my stuff back in the calm lands? Thanks, man. Really appreciate the hard work you're putting in. But I will say... In spite of that, I actually really liked a lot of the things that happened in the Hot Springs because it felt like you got to learn mo- a lot more about those characters. Did you like that Sid was going around in the Hot Springs like a shark? Yes. <laughs> I also really liked Awaka do- like practicing different variations on Welcome to Awakas. I wanted so bad when the whole shark thing was done that he snuck up on Naldia and like spooked her. I feel like that was an opportunity miss. Yeah, I sat there and waited for something to happen there, and it didn't. Yeah, I thought, welcome to Awakas. Yeah, that, that that was fun. And also a little interesting, because he he seemed so into it up there, and then going, and the stuff you're talking about, you were talking about where in Makalania he's giving up hope. I was like, oh man, really? Well, Makalania has happened right before that, and then he goes to the hot spring. So maybe... And I'm hoping that implies he went to the hot springs and thought, maybe thought about his position a little bit more. And like f- found himself getting into it again. Oaka's kind of a jerk and the shady merchant or whatever in both games, but I, I really jerk, but I, he's a jerk in that he charges you so much money. Like if you don't donate enough to him and stuff. And it's like, I can't believe you know, I, I I'm giving you money for nothing. And then you're going to sit here and charge me so much more than everybody else on top of it. Well, that's only if you just don't give them enough money, you know? Why Why on earth? Think about it as you're getting a discount for being an investor. That, to me, that made it sound like in the first game, that's what he was charging everybody. 
Yes, I, I kind I mean I kind of agree that he was being jerkish in that sense, but he's the merch he's supposed to be the wondrous merchant and you know it's obvious it's pretty clear that he doesn't have a whole lot of business sense to begin with. Especially yeah. because it's when his brother takes over, it seems like he does a better job. At least he has far and away better items. But well, I guess I can kind of see jerk when when putting it that way. I mean I guess when I just think about it is no wonder he was doing he was not doing great at business because he was charging so much more for things that were standard all through the beginning sections of the, of 10. His prices were substantially above everybody else's and only if you, you know, invested so much money into him did he ever become worth it. 10 kind of did that a lot though. A lot of the merchants in 10 whereas in this game it seemed like everybody was kind of on par with everybody else. There was a lot of different merchants in the game of 10 where some of them were massively overcharging for items. And I think it was just the general thought process at the time of let's take advantage of summoners on their quest, which is truly horrible, but it seemed like that's what a lot of the merchants were doing. It seems like Awaka wasn't the only one. Maybe. I don't remember. I feel like Awaka always stood out to me. Maybe it's just because of the whole side quest around him that I thought about his prices more. Because there are certain ones that you go to in in Final Fantasy X, specifically when you get to the whole shoe puff area in the first place. There's like six merchants in there, and three out of the six are charging like, I think, $1,000 for a high potion which is far and away more than anyone else in the game, including Owaka, if I remember correctly. There are several merchants there that were, they were charging like 10 grand for a regular armor piece that only had like one fill-in spot. I wonder if it's not a matter of just how much more dangerous the world was in 10. I mean, aside from, you know, obviously things are getting dangerous now as we're producing, heading towards the climax in 10 too, but, you know... Other than summoners, how many people really traveled the world like that? I get that, but on that same standpoint, the summoners are the people trying to save the world. You would think the merchants would at least give them a good deal. Oh, I don't I don't disagree. I'm just thinking like in general prices being higher and stuff probably stems from that sort of, you know, now a merchant traveling from Xanderkind all the way down to Besaid that isn't really nearly the dangerous trip that it would have been. Yeah, I agree. But then at that same point, that makes Waka not so horrible to begin with, other than giving you a slow discount over the time if you give him enough money to start his business again. Which yeah. that makes sense. I mean, that happens in you know in the world today. If you invest in a business. Or, or, or whatnot, you know, if you have tons and tons of money, those people might give you a discount or something. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, regardless, the, the the point of all this is I really want to see things work out for him. <laughs> I agree with you. I want that too. But there's a lot of stuff that happens at that hot spring. I mean, you get to see more about, like, Donna, which, admittedly, that wasn't anything we didn't already know, more about how she misses Bartello. But Not so much about, did you go back after you see Donna walking around in the first section because you go back to her house and she's in there sleeping, which is another part that I thought was incredibly creepy that I was now watching Donna sleep and dreaming about how she misses Bartello a lot. I don't know if you saw that or not. I didn't. I, I did see the stuff. Um, 
Uh, one thing I did like is if you watch, I, I think it's the second time around on the Comspheres when uh, she ties you to the balloon and sends the balloons up to the temple. And then if you watch it again, you can see Bartello basically returning the favor. And I thought that was kind of a, a nice little, you know, touching moment of. Well, in both sections, Bartello breaks the camera because of how much he loves Donna. Yeah, I know. But it was just nice to see them both like doing, I don't know, that whole, you know, basically trying to send messages via air and stuff. I I, I liked it. I, I don't entirely understand why they can't see each other in Kilika. That whole situation feels really weird. That's what I don't get either. That makes zero sense to me. And I'm hoping that kind of clears up now that it seems like both sides are are kind of burying the hatchet after the whole concert and everything. But I agree. I thought that was touching that both of them in both sections were, were thinking about one another and essentially just trying to get in touch with one another, which again, she shows up at the hot springs. So it's not like she can't travel out of Kilika. I don't understand why it's impossible for her because they mention only youth me members can go through the forest. And that was another thing that that I had that I thought about later. So she is a youth league member. Why can't she get through the forest? Why does we have to sneak through in chapter four? Why did we have to sneak around? We joined the youth league at that point. We gave them the sphere. That was joining the youth league. Because it's very clear that later when you go to Bavel, they're like, you youth league scum. It's clear that we joined them. I don't understand why we didn't have free reign to the forest. And I don't understand why What's-Her-Face wouldn't either. Even if she couldn't go up to the temple, she could at least talk to one of the guards and have them tell Bartello a message to come down and talk to her. Yeah. I feel like they easily could have. Now, Donna seems like way too strong. She seems like the... I'm too strong for this sort of thing. Too proud. Yeah. Too, too, yeah. Ex- yeah. You're right. Too proud is is a better word. So it seems like she was too proud to kind of do that. But it's still at a certain point when she's sending him a message and everything. At that point, it's not necessarily so proud, more stubbornness of, well, why aren't you coming down to see me? It all, But from Bartello's standpoint, it almost sounds like he can't. I thought he had mentioned he wasn't allowed to leave the temple because of the whole fiend thing. They made it sound like, and it's interesting, it might be because of the fiend thing. I got the impression that it was just that in Kilika, both sides had basically set up blockades and neither one was willing to budge, which is weird, but I I don't know. The whole Kilika situation in general is strange, especially because you can't even, Kilika, you can barely do anything with for the vast majority of the game compared to every other area. Well, in Kilika, my understanding is that the Youth League was essentially trying to choke the whole temple out because there was only one way in or out, and it seemed like they were trying to stop all supplies from getting through. Starve them out, basically. Exactly. And so I think that's why Bartello was not allowed to leave because I don't think the other Youth League members were going to let him. And at the same time, I think the temple... The new Yevon people were like, no, we're we're not going to stand for this. How dare you sort of thing, which you're right. I do think that whole situation was kind of odd in general, though. I will say I like seeing this side of Donna and Bartello's relationship. I mean, them not being able to see each other is a bit cliche or whatever. But in 10, 
I mean, it was obvious they kind of cared for each other, but like, I didn't feel like either of them had that much death. Donna was just kind of a jerk, and Bartello was just kind of a big, dumb meathead that happened to protect her, and she thought he was hot because, you know, he was physically strong and a big dude. I don't know. I, I, I disagree with that in a sense. It seemed like that was the case from the beginning. Near the end of their whole storyline, it seemed very clear that just like Yuna and Titus, that Donna was essentially giving all of herself to Bartello. Because she even mentions that later when you talk to, when she's talking to the Hypello. Because she, she's talking to her, and I don't know if you saw that one either. I think this is the part where you're missing out on a lot of things, because I think you just didn't watch all the spheres. There's so many. It was... I mean, I watched a lot of them, including a lot of the ones that weren't required, but... Well, I didn't seem to have a problem doing it. Anyway, she talks about how they basically gave everything of themselves to one another as they were going through their whole mission. As they were doing the whole summoner thing, it talks about how she would do anything to protect him and he would do the likewise. It definitely sets it up that they built this deep connection to one another one another in the same way that Titus and Yuna did. It's just Donna is the very like strong type of she's never going to show anybody her weakness, so you never really get anything like that. Yeah, that's fair. So so I, I do disagree there. I don't think it was just... I think she originally picked him because he was the strong guy. But I think over time, it was definitely not about that at all. Even though that's what she was telling people, it was very clear that she has a deep connection with him. And likewise with her. To the extent that he loves her so much, he broke the sphere twice. Yeah. With, with, with his... Love energy with is, his, I think, what Shinra called it. With his something. anguish of his <laughs> cries of of love and missing her. Exactly. I do want to point out, Tobley, bro, um, I totally get why everyone is mad at you because you're super bad at your job. Thunder Plains is by far the worst place in history to set up shop for a concert. I was really confused why it wasn't the Calmlands. When the Calmlands is an option. Yeah. Are you kidding me? So that little thing I commented about a couple episodes ago on, hey, those guys are at Guadalajara and they're angry and pounding on Tobley's door. That did come back up and I did enjoy that little sequence of watching Tobley run away from them over and over again. Yes. And then him crashing into his cart with one of their with one of their machina sh- sheds. Yeah, the or sleds. Sled, yeah. That was really funny. And then you have to go on the shoe puff and then back to the shoe puff. Did you remember to do the publicity stuff while you were there? I did, yes. Yeah. Cuz that's the only publicity you can even do that entire time. I didn't even think you could. And I wasn't even going to check, but as soon as it put me next to that one girl at the end of the moon flow that has done publicity every single yeah, the, time. Yeah, the bad lady. Yeah. I just walked up and pressed Y and it said publicity and I was like, oh, okay. So then I pulled up my publicity guide and started using that. As I understand it, we are well beyond the scores we need for publicity at this point, but I'm still doing it every time it comes up. There's no reason not to maximize it. I and, and I think, because th- that's the other thing is it just, I think it changes a little bit about what actually happens 
Because I know that the marriage, apparently, like, a whole bunch of girls show up if you get it, like, really high. And I think that that might affect something for, like, the open air. Open air or Argent, whichever one. Which I chose open air. I did, too. I chose open air because that was the one that, that Riku liked. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Riku liked it, so I was like, ah, I'll do that one. I will say, one thing I was thinking about as I've been going through and listening to previous stuff... Um, and, you know, checking the audio and things like I do that after Chris sets it up is suddenly it does make a lot more sense to me why Payne was against the Youth League. I mean, I know a lot of it is, okay, well, Riku and Payne each have a different side, so that way you get to pick and don't have everybody pushing you in one direction. But given that we found out that Nuge shot her and everybody else, I can see why she was anti-youth league at the beginning and had recommended new yavin because of the two i would probably say that too yeah especially since apparently news is still around so here's the other thing is pain just like Arn actually dead i don't think so i don't think she is either and i don't think bar Barali or gibble are but it does mention that they were in the far plane so i don't know if they were just there because they just they somehow figured out how to get to the far plane. Maybe that's why, maybe that is why the far plane is so out of control. This whole game is because there, something is going on with Vegnagon. It kind of seems like those holes are in a sense linked to the far plane somehow. Yeah. I mean, they definitely say that in the beginning of chapter five, when you're going through, there's that whole thing of, Oh, we got to jump in one of these holes. That's just what they established to get to the far plane. Exactly. That immediately makes me think though, that the far plane being this thing that's apparently connected all underground reminds me a lot of Final Fantasy VII with the life stream. And back in that very first episode, I threw that thing out there about, you know, Shinra and the Shinra company and all those rumors that had existed that it was a prequel to Seven. I just thought it was an interesting parallel between the far plane and the life stream. So did you have anything else to say about that? Not really, just that that kind of lended more credence to that possibility of that being true, because the far plane apparently, you know, is connected into deep in the underground, which is exactly where the life stream is in in seven, because it's very, in seven it's very clearly an oil analogy that sh the Shinra company is digging up the life stream and using it, converting it to energy, and I just thought that was an interesting parallel. Yeah, and if that if that proves true in any way, I mean they're redoing seven. Ten came out way after that. If they want to expand that storyline, we're definitely going to get it if it is in there in Yeah, especially with seven having three games now, they're gonna have to add a lot of stuff. Yeah. So that it would be kinda cool if they tied seven back to ten if they do go with the popular fan theory of them being connected. Now, I know that Final Fantasy in general reuses a lot of names, so Shinra may just be a coincidence, just like, you know, Sid. But, I mean, with a lot of the parallels that you've mentioned, it's very possible. Yeah, if it was just the name, I would just think it was a f funny, like, you know, fun little throwback. It's just everything else coming together. I can see where someone would get the impression that this is supposed to be a prequel, I guess. Did you see the musicians disappearing in Makalania Woods? I saw them talking about disappearing, and then they did their little disappear thing, but I didn't see a more permanent disappearing, if that's what you're... Yeah. 
when you go back one by one, you see them appear and then just fade away and the camera goes all wonky. Oh, that's a bummer. All of them disappear. So each one of them actually is, from what I can tell, permagon. And I I kind of hope that the guide has us going to Makalania relatively quick. I don't think it will, because for whatever reason, it seems like the guide and everything else, the story in general, all kind of follow exactly what you did in in the first game. Oh, yeah, and it, it's also Sage, just because... You will kind of always do them in order. Yeah, and I think also that's just because that's the order they're listed on the um, airship screen, too. Yeah, so... All of them disappear, but there was another one earlier on that made it seem like the Faith are not gone. I don't remember exactly what was said, and I'd have to go back because I guess now is a better time to bring this up than any. I'm actually going through and replaying the game again because I decided that I wanted to put our episodes on YouTube as well but I didn't want to just have a static screen. So I wanted to put gameplay behind it. And since I just kind of started doing this, I am going back and replaying the previous chapters, which again, lends credence to the fact that I absolutely love this game at this point. I really like it. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it has its problems just like any game does, but I like this game way more than I thought I was going to. And yeah, so because of that, I'm going to go back and, and, figure out exactly what was said when I'm watching through these videos. But it meant I do see one of the spheres alludes to the fact that the faith may not all be gone. They may not be dreaming, but it kind of seems like they're not dead. Well, so if all the temples connect down into the far plane that it kind of sounds like it do, they do, then isn't that really all the faith were is basically far plane spirits that just stayed there instead of going back to the far plane? I don't think they were spirits, though. I thought they were just these... I thought they were just a bunch of people that got together and started having like a massive shared dream. And over time, they just kind of the amount of energy that they were all generating from this just it kind of seemed like it sustained them. See, I always thought they were supposed to be, you know, dead and spirits, maybe not the same exact same spirits that were specifically from the far plane. But I always got the impression that, you know, whatever their origins, they were essentially just spirits at this point. I mean, they were bodies moving around on the side of the mountain when you go up the faith scar. And if you look at them now, when they stopped dreaming, they all turned to stone. They did not seem like dead spirits to me. They seemed like they were legit, like, people just dreaming. Actually, when they turned to stone, that actually makes me think, is that basically exactly the same thing that Shunyan is doing, possessing bodies? Were they just possessing the statues? What do you mean, the statues? Like... You say they turn into statues, you know, in the chambers of the faith when they disappear. So was that statue always there? And the I'm faith- not talking about the chambers of the faith. I'm talking about on top of Mount Gagazet. When you go there for the first time, you see a bunch of people and some of them are moving and they're like inside the mountain as if the mountain grew around them. Right. But I thought you were talking about at the end when the, when they leave and they just turn into statues. You're talking, saying that also happens on Gagazet? Yes. Okay, then I guess I don't remember. The original game. They, when it shows them, like, the pyreflies leaving them, they turn to stone. Well, then again, I guess, you know, there's the pyreflies leaving them and they turn into statues, so that does suggest on some level pyreflies can possess stuff. I don't think that they were possessing them, though. I think the, 
what they were getting at is these are the people finally moving on and their bodies petrified. All of these people can finally stop dreaming, so they all finally just die and move on. That was the impression that I got when I watched that scene. Not that they were possessing some random person and having a dream because of that. That implies that the Faith are way worse than Yevon, almost. I mean, not if they they were possessing something that was literally a statue the whole time, that wouldn't make them any worse. Why would there be... Why would someone have built a gigantic statue on Gagazette that is just a bunch of bodies? That seems way more creepy than... Like, was there just an insane... When Yevon just went nuts, did he just carve a bunch of statues into the side of a mountain? Because the statues, I don't think they were statues that they were, quote-unquote, possessing in the temples either. Those They say that those are people that straight up gave up their lives to become an Aeon. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that part specifically about people becoming Aeons obviously has a lot of truth to it in the sense of a obviously what happens with sin but also just we saw that from like you know um one of the secret aeons actually being seymour's mom the whole time i actually think that the faith aren't entirely gone and that's why makalania was still around and that's why makalania is slowly fading away is because the faith are still there and maybe it's just taking longer for them to all dissipate so to speak because that's the impression that I get. I, I I got the impression that the faith are not all gone yet. Yeah, there's been a couple things that have implied something similar. Um, I feel like Machen said something similar to that at some point, and might have even been in the same conversation that he hinted that Titus was still around somehow. And yes, I do think the uh, the musicians in Macalania have made hints to that in previous chapters as well. I also wanted to point out that uh, Yaibel's dedication is truly legendary. If you watched all the Mushroom Rock comm spheres, Mm -hmm. each time you go back, there's less and less people. One of the times you go back, Yaibel's like, yeah, I want to leave, but, you know, I just don't think I can. The very next sphere is him going to all of his people. We need to go to the Thunder Plains to protect Yuna because those Yevon people are going to be there and we need to stop them. (laughs) It's like, dude, you clearly just want to go see the concert just like everybody else. Well, yeah, and there was even a previous sphere where Yuna basically gave him that idea to do that anyway. Yeah, that was the one right before that. Yuna gives him that idea. And then it's like, everybody, let's go. I just thought that was funny. And then that guy that was that, that was that talked to you earlier, because if you go back, he goes, uh, I feel kind of weird with you watching me. I don't know how I'm going to do my job. This time, when you look at him, he goes, everyone is leaving. Why am I even still here? Maybe I should just go to the concert, too. <laughs> then you leave, go back, and he's gone. And it's just so funny, because then uh, Lucille comes back out, and she just comes out shakes her head and just goes back inside. (laughs) And it was just so funny to me that like every time you go to Mushroom Rock, there's just less and less people. And she was like, we're supposed to be planning a war over here and you all just left. But now on to the true disappointment of this game, at least for me anyway. Okay. So we have a concert. Yep. During the concert, Len shows up. Yeah, that, that sure was a thing. I've been thinking about that section for a while now. Seems less and less like it's going to be reincarnation and more and more like it's 
Shu Yin is just trying to. It seems more like at this point, it's like I just have to kill everybody because of th this thing happened, and I don't want it to happen. My theory of reincarnation sounded to me infinitely better than I think what we're going to get, and I think you alluded to that last time too. Yeah, it was and certainly I'm super disappointed because I just I feel like you're right now. I feel like it's just going to be a we built up this whole thing. We didn't really know how to end it. And here's what happened. Yeah. Chapter four in general, everything about chapter four feels like that's what it is. It's just, yeah, we don't know how to end these things. So here, we're just going to throw them around, which maybe the stuff in chapter five will be better about that. I don't know. But so, so this concert, what exactly happened to that concert is very, very weird and hard to even say. I know Shinra tosses out some theory about the dress sphere resonating with his cool virtual tech or whatever, which don't get me wrong. The fact that he apparently invented like VR that can project across an entire, the entire Thunder Plains is pretty amazing. So good job, Shinra. But he didn't invent that. Andrew, you alluded to this before in a previous episode. We don't know where spheres come from. And it's very likely that those spheres came from Xanarkin or not necessarily just Xanarkin, but a pre-thousand-year war. Not a thousand-year yeah. war, but thousand years after the war. Those spheres way me, may be way more advanced than we thought and capable of way more than we thought. It's possible the reason why they look so damaged and look so distorted is because the way we're viewing them is not the way they're meant to be viewed. That is an interesting theory, and I... I like where you're going there. I, I use the term that he invented it because that's exactly what he says. And I think at the very least, it's it's an invention in the sense that he figured out something to do with spheres that other people hadn't been. He figured out a way to get them to work in a way that no one else. Right. But regardless, you get this whole big projection thing. And then she starts to, Yuna starts to look like Lynn. And then all of a sudden, Lynn's a separate person. The whole thing is just very, like... I guess, abstract and symbolic, but it's like, what do you think actually happened in that concert? Was there a second thing? Was it just a, like, what? I assume that, if anything, that would have just been a hologram version of her, but I, I don't feel like that's exactly right. What I think happened is essentially exactly what Shinra said. I think this whole song was Len's last shot because the sphere mentions that in this sphere, this is the essence of her. Yeah. I was... think what happened is the exact same thing that Yuna was going to do for Titus in final fantasy 10 original Yuna at the travel agency is talking into a sphere and essentially making her last will and Testament when she has an opportunity and they have a break right before you fight the chocobo eater. She talks about how she is saying, you see the sphere where she says goodbye to everybody. And then she talks to Titus. And then she kind of just says, you know, we just kind of first met, but already I feel things for you that I've never felt for anyone before. Yeah, I, I think I do remember that. that's exactly what this song was. I think this song was meant for Shu Yin. And this was meant to be her last, like, love song to him saying, this is how I truly felt about you. She's doing the same thing that Yuna did. She's giving up her life to 
uh, save the people of her land, even though she knew it was futile. And Titus, well, in this case, Shuyin's essentially doing the same thing. And I think this is her last will and testament to him. I think that whole song was her last love song to him, telling him what her true feelings were, letting her him know that she truly cared about him. And I think that when this whole sphere resonated with his massive calm network, I think we got a glimpse of how the spheres were meant to be viewed. And, and in that case, a last glimpse of the actual person themselves, a hologram in a sense, which is why she feels the same things Len feels because she's essentially taking on Len's personality when she becomes that dress sphere. Right, yes, the the dress sphere thing, and it's always been that one, and the one that we've had well-established before now was Lynn. So when you spell it all out like that, I I really like what you just said there, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's exactly what it is, because even then, Yuna says, I have got... Because that's the first mission in Chapter 5. I've got to tell Shuyin this. Because everybody else was apparently... Because that whole concert stopped all the fighting and everything. Like, that essentially put everything to a halt. And even Maeklin mentions, when you go talk to him after the whole thing, that her skills as a summoner, or her, her skills as a songstress, as I think he called her, was on par with her skills as being a great summoner, which is why she, you know, basically sacrificed herself, which is exactly what Yuna was going to do. Yeah, and one thing we did learn about that that I think we had talked, again, I know we had talked about briefly when we had discussed this war from a thousand years ago, but they did explicitly establish that Xanarkin were not the ones using the Machina that was coming from Bavel and the other cities, and Xanarkin was using summoners to defend it. Exactly. Did you notice that Maeklin knew that was that was Len, too? I did, yes. Almost as if, and he didn't know who Shu Yin was. Almost as if he knew the celebrity, the singer, and the summoner a thousand years ago, but didn't know who her boyfriend was. Yeah. Maeklin's definitely a thousand years old, and I have a theory. Okay. But before we get to that... Was there anything else you wanted to touch on uh, before we kind of go into our expectations? Not really. Uh, This was kind of a hard episode for me, I guess, because since we were spending this episode in general was just such a disappointment, like you said earlier, that I don't really even feel like there's that much to cover compared to some previous sections. A lot of it feels kind of more like a rehash of 10, especially when when you look at the parallel of, you know, what could potentially be Lynn's last will and testament, just like that's what Yuna was going to do, which is why Yuna understands it. It kind of feels like that was whole. It kind of feels like the whole story in general is almost a rehash because Lynn gave up her life just like every summoner before her. Kind of seems like summoners in general in the world of Sphera, it's a good thing that they're gone because it seems like almost every time there is a summoner, they have to die for somebody. Yeah. Calling it a rehash, I get where you're coming from, and for to some extent I agree, but it actually feels more like it's a rehash, but with the focus specifically on the romantic relationship, whereas 10 was much more about the journey to save the world. But it's the same sort of thing, but like looking at it from a different angle. 
No, you, you're right. I agree with you there. Rehash, I wouldn't. I, I would. I take that back. It's it's they're rehashing elements. I think is a better way to put it. There there are bits and pieces that have parallels to ten, which I'm not surprised. It's a sequel. Of yeah, exactly. There will I, be. I would be. I would have been surprised if there weren't parallels like that. And, and when I say rehash, I'm not entirely saying it's the fault of the game. But I do agree they only took two years to bring this out. And I agree with you at that same standpoint. Ford was, it was just, it was disappointing in the sense that I wish there was more game. I wish there was more to find out. I wish there was more to see and do. And if you're right, and Final Fantasy X really does have, it really is a prequel to seven. With there being three games, we actually might get more. I don't know. I, I I guess I should clarify. I'm not sure that I necessarily buy that. I'm just that I can see the logic. If they do make that connection, I would be really interested, and I kind of hope they do. But that's not historically how Final Fantasy has worked, and I still feel like it's probably just a bunch of intentional homages. But I guess it's more of a hope than an actual belief, just to clarify. You can see the parallel between spheres and materials, and like I was saying, the live stream versus... The far plane and stuff. I and given the sort of wild applications of things that we've seen Shinra do, it would not shock me to find out that he basically invents electricity on top of that. Or rediscovers it, I guess, because Xander can look like I already had it. Well, from what I understand, in in seven, they're tapping the far plane. Yes, they're they're tapping the live stream. Yes, exactly. That's what powers like I said, it, in seven, taken in isolation, it's very obviously basically an oil analog. But yeah, they're they're literally tapping into the life stream and pulling it out and using it. And so given that the far plane runs under the planet, you know, Shinra discovering something about that and le- or one of Shinra's descendants, I suppose, but somebody in his lineage discovering a way to use this stuff for electricity doesn't feel out of the question by any stretch. Well, at the same time, the far plane, especially since it can generate you know, images of your dead loved ones. Seems like there's an awful lot of energy there. Yep. Here's the thing where it's square. We're probably definitely not. It's going to be a completely separate game. It seems like it's almost entirely like that's going to happen. But I really do like that. And I wish they would do something with that. And by before I wish that they would add Blitzball to Final Fantasy seven. Hey, you know, if, if if with everything else they're adding, maybe they will. Yeah, they have just one. Oh, the second game is just Blitzball. <laughs> An entire like 60 hour Blitzball experience. Oh, that would make me so happy. People wouldn't buy it just because, oh, well, I don't like Blitzball. But you would buy like 10 copies. Oh, yeah. I would single handedly buy every copy in existence only so Square is like, people obviously loved this. People loved it. Even though the internet's going to be nothing but hate, they're like, the, the numbers of this game show clearly that people loved it. (laughs) If I had the amount of money to force Square's hand on this one, I would do it. All right. So what are your predictions then? Now that we're going into the final chapter, what are your predictions? I'm turning it back around, huh? All right. Well, well, you always go first. (laughs) Fair enough. So obviously given that this is the last chapter, I'm expecting all of these because each area has kind of had its own little plot in some way. Uh, I'm expecting all of these to 
these side stories to wrap up that we've been seeing because each chapter has kind of had its own little, you know, mini story or not each chapter, each location rather across the chapters. And so chapter five being the final chapter, I fully expect him to wrap up. And I don't know if you were taking a look at the navigation panel in chapter five, but I did, I didn't go anywhere, but I did take a look at it and every single area is a hotspot now. Oh, and I assume no, I didn't look at the, I did not look at the, map yeah they all one by one activate and give you that little hotspot notification and i would assume had we not been being as thorough as we are a lot of those wouldn't have them but since we have been covering everything that we'll get to see you know the finales of each section so i'm expecting especially this next week is going to be a a lot of side quests wrapping up and going off and oh okay you know here's the difference you've made across the course of the game in Besaid, and here's what you did in Kilika and stuff like that. But I think that's all I've got for this coming week because I feel like the stuff with Shuyin, I have a feeling, is going to lead us directly into the finale. So I don't think we'll be hitting that for a little while. So what are you thinking? Well, first I want to talk about Mascot <laughs> and how amazing it is. I'm extremely jealous of you for that. Because, wow, each Mascot, when you look at the abilities, the bottom sections are just abilities of other dress spheres. So not only with Mascot do you have the insanely powerful abilities that Mascot has, but you also just straight up get the abilities of other dress spheres. Like you get Bushido, you get White Mage, you get Dark Knight, you get another one. I don't know what all of them are. Pain straight up gets Ribbon. It takes 999 AP, but Pain just gets ribbon on hers. Mascot is insanely powerful, and I am so happy. Yeah. For the context there, I know we kind of talked about it a little bit since Chris busted that reveal out at the end of last section, but normally you only get Mascot if you 100% complete each chapter. I don't know if you have to get a full 100% or if you just have to get, like, wrap wrap up the stories in each area, but those are essentially going to, you know, be almost the same thing, if not completely. And Chris got it through the uh, Fiend Arena and the Monster Catching minigame, which I've been working on, but have not been able to beat that yet. So I've got some work to do there. Well, now that we're in Chapter 5, there's actually more powerful creatures that you can... Uh, capture and yeah. there's actually a better way of doing it oh yeah basically using machina is way better uh a lot of people use two machinas the leader and the something else i can't remember what it is but they're using two different machina variations and then they use i think still a chocobo and impale is apparently mega powerful and it, there's actually so i'm going to be doing a lot of creature creator too uh because i want to go through and beat all the cups because you can also get the Aeon Cup, which to me, I know that this isn't a part of the story, really, but the Aeon Cup, what you have to do is capture a fiend, level it up five times, and then when you look at its creature history, there'll be a thing in there that says, this thing has a faith scar, or a, a fragment. faith a faith fragment. And when you release it, it turns into an Aeon. So... What if that's what they were doing before? What if they found a super strong fiend in 
in different areas before and then sacrifice themselves to join with it to become an actual Aeon. What if that's what the Aeons actually are? So then the Aeons that we're fighting, the like Dark Aeons, I think they've been calling them, what would that be basically that fused monster human or monster faith hybrid with the faith part leaving so it like doesn't have the control that it did maybe that's a possibility because now that the now that the faith is gone because it, they can't talk to her either and it sort of seemed like each faith was talking to Yuna it seemed like they actually built a connection with her because when you went around in Final Fantasy 10 and you got all the Aeons, she had to spend a lot of time like praying to them and basically convincing them to join her cause. And apparently that takes a lot out on the summoner because she's essentially doing a, a mental, like mental chess with the Aeons to get them to join her and, and to get them to become an actual summon. I wonder if you're right there. And once the faith died, the Aeon busted out of its, um, pod or whatever that thing was and essentially started taking control of the fiends in the area. And maybe that's why they're dark aeons because they are the aeons that are just now officially become fiends. Yeah. Like that, that, I mean, again, I doubt we'll ever actually know what that's about, but I really like your idea there. And I think, I think you might be onto something, but the real theory that I've got, I believe that Mocklin is actually the, villain of the entire story go on <laughs> so mocklin we've established that this dude's clearly a thousand years old right he looks like some sort of i think that he was like because he's kind of dressed up like uh the yevon yeah he always kind of looked like he was like a priest or something i think mocklin actually traveled with the original yevon and that mocklin died somehow Maybe he was a guardian with Yevon or whatnot, but when he mentions that he saw Lin and cried for the first time, those were tears of joy because he was able to watch Lin and Titus die for the second time. <laughs> because in that concert, you see Yevon, or not Yevon, you see uh, Shu Yin, and Len die. I think Mocklin ordered their death. I think that Mocklin was the true... He was the villain of the machine side. And he was trying to kill everyone in Xanarkin. And what happened was... Len got too far. She got to Vegnagun. And so did Shuyin. And they were going to take it over and use their machines against them. And the person that, that Shuyin is talking to in all those spheres is Mocklin. I know it's Mocklin. He's the one that he's talking about. He's trying to save the summoner. He's doing all these things. And he was so happy when he got to see them die for the second time. And that when he sees Shulin again, he basically spent all that time manipulating him into thinking that he needed to kill everybody. And basically, Mocklin just wants chaos. Mocklin <laughs> wants everyone to die. He wants you to die of boredom in both games. <laughs> He sees Titus and he talks to Titus and he's like, I know this dude. I hate him. He's clearly this Shuyin dude. I don't know what the faith are planning. I don't know what's happening, but this whole sin killing everybody is fantastic. And I got to stop this. 
I have to bore this guy to death by wasting all of his time in all of these conversations, and I'm going to do the same thing to Yuna. Yuna's out there, and she kind of seems like she's summoning Len in some way, shape, or form, and he knows that Shuyin's possessing people. He's definitely the bad guy. He's the ultimate bad guy. <laughs> and what I think is the reason we didn't go to Comlands is because they are setting up for the Grand Prix. The Comlands is just gigantic circle. And Tobley must have known that they were setting up for this massive battle in the Comlands because he decided to go to the Thunder Plains. Because he's like, listen, there's a bunch of stuff there. Mocklin has already taken this up to, to have his giant battle. I think he's working with Tobley because it's clear that Tobley will just work with whoever. Tobley is just going to work with whoever he wants to to get his, his money. Tobley is like a more intense version of Awaka who all he cares about is money, 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 money. He's using these high pillow. He's getting all this information. He has you go to the to the Thunder Plains, which is raining constantly. Ooh, maybe the whole thing resonated because there was so much energy because the Thunder Plains constantly have lightning. I just thought about that. But anyway, regardless, all of that, there's just so much more power, which is what allowed the, the VR thing to happen. Yeah. But regardless, that all aside... Toby's working with him, so he knew that things were going in on the Comlands. It's probably where Vegnagun is. <laughs> and I know that Mocklin is controlling everything. That's why he keeps showing up in the Syndicate. That's why he shows up in the Gullwings. He tried to sabotage, but Buddy was down in the engine room, so he couldn't. Because you go talk to Buddy in the engine room, and he gives you the the whole thing about why they're called the, the Gullwings and everything. And it was kind of adorable and cute. And for the first time in this entire game, I've actually been proud of Brother. <laughs> I never thought I'd hear you say that. Like, it, it kind of seems like it's come full circle. He's, for the first time, I rested and actually got to scene. Yes, I think the idea was you had to rest in all five chapters to get that specific scene. Probably because brother was watching you sleep the whole time because oh he, he actually is a giant creeper. But you get that scene, and it's brother basically talking about how he just has all of this respect for Yuna and seeing her going out and doing things is why he's attracted to her. I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't even think about it since it was actually a chapter five thing. It happens at the very beginning, but that is definitely an important thing to cover because it actually does make brother. Well, the thing he says that really stood out that kind of goes to what you're saying, getting at is, you know, I like seeing, Yuna from behind where she's out in the front leading. I find that, you know, much more attractive than the one who would, you know, actually stop and turn around and face me. Like, And I think that's why he's been forcing her to make the decisions this whole game is because that's the Yuna he wants to see. That is the, he wants to see the, the powerful Yuna of the first game. And, and that's what he's attracted to. But that all aside, Mocklin's definitely the main villain. He has to be. He's been in both games. He's super mega ultimate old. He was crying so much because he finally got to see them die a second time. All of those people in that video were wearing green. He wears green. Mocklin villain. Like, confirmed. Confirmed. It's got to be. That has to be it. Uh... This is my favorite part of this podcast is every time you give your predictions. I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. So we done goofed it again. <laughs> Unfortunately, and, a recurring theme. 
And as I was editing the episode, I realized we left everybody hanging. Andrew meant to follow up on his story about Gazette, and we never circled around to it. So, Andrew, take it away. Yeah, so after that buildup, it's not exactly the most exciting thing, but what really bugged me about it after I had some time to think and really process it was... It felt like all the stuff we had done talking to the Ronzo was completely disconnected from the actual resolution because somehow all those encouraging th- like things that we were saying that were basically encouraging them to go fight the Guado somehow makes it so that less Guado or make it so that less Ronzo support fighting the Guado like it just feels really disconnected. Why were we even saying those things? See, I I'm not that's actually confusing to me because I don't ever directly even remember anyone referencing what we had said earlier other than Kamari and Garrick. None yeah. of the other Ronzo were even there. So I don't know why we had to pick specific dialogues for each individual Ronzo specifically for that. Maybe it was more of a the Ronzos as a whole feel a certain way and because of that the mountain is silent. Well according to the guide what it was saying was that it reduced the number of Ronzo that fight with Garrick in the fight on the mountain in chapter three because of the things we said, which is the part that strikes me as very confusing because again, how is what we said discouraging them from fighting? Like that doesn't make any sense. At first, not all of the dialogue options were actually aggressive. So it may just be, some of them were, and maybe those are the people that were going with with Garrick. And maybe it was just one of those things where eventually, you know, there there are certain ones that were always going to go with Garrick, and maybe those are the ones that actually went with him. I just, I couldn't tell a difference at all between what Ronzo was there and what wasn't, because when you're going up the mountain, it just has, like, copied and pasted Ronzo walking up the mountain. And... Not even that. So many more Ronzo than we have ever seen at literally any point in the previous two games, including before the Guado tragically destroyed them. Yeah. So many Ronzo all of a sudden. There is one thing I will say, though. It does seem like, especially after all of that, because that was chapter three, right? Yes. And did we go to Mount Gagazet in chapter four? I think there was something we had comm spheres that was it because we could barely go anywhere oh that's right but when you're listening to the comm spheres it's pretty clear that the ronzo in general have a lot of respect for kamari at least now i don't know if you got the same impression yeah and don't get me wrong i'm glad that he has some respect now because he should always have had that respect but again, that did feel a little bit weird because it seems like they just flipped a switch from Kamari's a terrible elder to, yeah, we love Kamari, when essentially nothing has happened other than Yuna and her friends, not even Kamari, went up and beat the crap out of Garrick. No, it wasn't necessarily that. It was what I saw was everybody, all the Ronzo and everything were getting ready and they were going to go see the concert just like Yuna was, but Kamari was staying behind to protect the mountain. Right, And I think it was that decision that a lot of the Ronzo really respected him for. Because it was more of, okay, no, he really is the elder. He's the guy that that takes care of things when we can't. 
And they, and they were specifically saying that we can leave because we know Kamari will be here to protect the mountain. Okay. I don't think I saw that one, and that would probably explain... That does seem to give a much better reason for increased respect than the stuff I had seen, so... There was actually one other thing I wanted to bring up, and that was, in the guide, when you're doing the whole Meehan High Road stuff with, with going back between Ren and you're trying to figure out who is actually the culprit behind the Machina... Which... I'm glad we actually got to do that. I'm just going to interject with that real quick because I'm glad they actually looped back to that and didn't just leave it hanging like I had discussed previously. But they didn't, though, because in the guide, it specifically says it's optimal if Riku is pinned as the culprit. Yeah, but the guide is clearly getting ahead of itself because that part of it actually happens in Chapter 5. Really? Yes. When you go back to Meehan, that's the conclusion on Meehan. So based off of your choices, then you find out who the actual person is? I guess. I'm not sure how it's going to figure out who the culprit is unless you get to actually pick it. That's the part I'm not clear on, but, you know. When I was reading in the guide, it just says, randomly based off of your decisions, it will pick this, this, and this. And depending on what you did there, it will either be these three people, and the optimal solution is that it's Riku. Yeah. Because then you get the Ragnarok. But that isn't even a conclusion that you were wanting because it's Riku could not have done it. She's been with us literally the entire time. Yeah. But I just thought that was funny because optimally Riku will be pinned as the culprit. I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> Ultimately, Riku, it, the best case scenario for you as a player is that Riku is a criminal. <laughs> You know, the, the epilogue may result in, in Riku going to jail for her horrible crimes on Meehan, but you get a cool accessory out of it. Uh, that That's really all that matters. We'll save Riku, you know. There'll, there'll be a cool jailbreak session. Yeah. Maybe that's, see, maybe that's why it's optimal, is so we can play the jailbreak minigame that otherwise you don't get. There you go. That's the extra 100%. That's like the extra 2% that we're needing. Is is, is Instead of sphere break, they're like, prison break. <laughs> she has to sphere break with the guards. Yes. Well, then I think that's going to do it for episode eight of Video Games Cover to Cover. New episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe YouTube by the time this comes up. But remember, I hate walk up.